Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. No worries. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's session of Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. I'm Christina Cuthbertson, and I'm uh, very pleased to be your moderator for today. Just a few housekeeping notes before we get started. Um, I'd like to ask you to take this opportunity to please turn off your cell phones and to remind you that this session is being recorded and broadcast live on CKXU Radio 88.3. SACPA is a volunteer nonprofit organization that relies on the support of our members and attendees uh, of our sessions. Lunch today is $11, and you'll find a basket in the center of your table. If you can put your money in it and designate someone at your table to count it prior to SACPA collecting it, that would be greatly appreciated. I'd like to take a moment to thank our partners, the University of Lethbridge, Country Kitchen Catering, who will prepare our meal for today, Shaw TV, and Lethbridge Media. Today's session will follow the regular format, 30 minutes each for our presenter, 30 minutes for lunch, and 30 minutes to keep the discussion going at the end um, with a question period, which will bring us to 1.30. Now it's my pleasure to introduce to you today Judith Kulig, who will speak on the experiences of the Slave Lake disaster and um, preparing for, for, for the future. Dr. Ch- Judith Kulig is a professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Lethbridge. Her research focuses on rural health issues, which include the examination of human costs of wildfires. She is senior co-editor of uh, Health in Rural Canada, the only comprehensive book of its kind in Canada that examines rural health issues in our country. So without any further delay, please join me in welcoming Judith Kulig. Good afternoon, everyone. I'll just do a mic check and make sure everybody can hear me okay. Great. I'll be able to go to the slides and point out things as I need to. Thanks very much for coming this afternoon. Um, I have a great passion for talking about rural health issues and rural communities, and so it's a real pleasure today to talk with you about Slave Lake. So I want you to imagine that it's one ordinary Sunday afternoon, and you're enjoying the day with your family. And then you see smoke, and then the wind comes up, and you have one hour to leave your home. What would you take? What are you thinking as you drive away? And what will you come back to? You never expected to evacuate or see your community look this way. I want to point out a couple of really interesting things about this photograph. Um, We did a helicopter flyover of Slag Lake the week of August 8th. And um, you may not be aware that 50% of the homes in North America that are lost due to wildfires are due to flying embers. They're not due from the actual flames itself. This area of Slave Lake, which is the most 
uh, hit area of the, of the community um, was hit by flying embers. And I wanted to tell you the figures, but I want you to think about it as a comparison. So a small-scale fire will actually uh, result in about 5,000 to 10,000 embers per hectare. Okay? The famous Black Saturday fires from Australia, they figure that there was 150,000 embers per hectare. And I hope that you're shocked, as I was to know, that in Slave Lake, it was 900,000 embers per hectare. Quite honestly, they had no opportunity to save this community. Um, the weekend of the fire, there was 189 fire starts across the province, and 52 of those fire starts were in the Slave Lake area. In addition, it was a very fast-moving fire. The one area, the Hamlet area of Widewater and Canyon Creek, the fire actually breached that uh, area within 31 hours of being spotted. And spot fires were found one to one and a half miles ahead of this fire. So you've been evacuated and you're able to come back and your worst fears are realized. What will now happen to you as an individual, to your children and to your family? Your neighborhood is completely gone and you wonder what will happen to your community. The fire was so hot that the, um, the rims of the tires and the metals literally pooled as a liquid. Um, basements exploded and the firefighters talk about the sounds of, of trying to deal with this fire and how the propane tanks were exploding and all the noises that were going on. Now we know from our own experiences that wildfires are not things that just happen to other people. They also happen to us as we know from, this is the most recent wildfire which was just over a month ago. But wildfires are also something from our past. So if you see this news clipping here, this is from the Fort McLeod Gazette. And of course, Fort McLeod is the oldest um, community in the province. And they always put in their newspaper highlights from the past issues. So you'll see here that there's a reference to September 21st, 1922. It is feared that several people have perished in a prairie fire that is raging on the Blood Reserve. Those comments about wildfires in the historical past of Fort McLeod in the area are not uncommon. One of our participants said, it definitely was a shocking experience, and I think most people have been affected, but have been able to come back and get back with their life. It's something I know of people of Slave Lake. People would stand and bounce back. So today we're going to talk about the community of Slave Lake and the families there and what is happening. This is the fourth wildfire study that I have um, investigated. I've been the lead researcher on a multidisciplinary research team that's been looking at wildfire issues since 2007. We studied the Lost Creek Fire, uh, 2003 fire in the Christmas Pass, which is where I'm a resident from. We also studied the McClure Fire, which was also part of the 2003 firestorm in BC. So the McClure Fire was in Barrier, which is north of Kamloops which lost 95 structures, a very destructive fire, and it imploded the Toko Mill. Um, 400 people lost their job, and the Toko Mill was never rebuilt. And in addition, we've studied the Mallard Fire in 1999, which was in Laurent, Saskatchewan. So when the um, Slave Lake Fire occurred, just by total fluke, the fires, of course, were May 14th and 15th, 
And just by fluke, on May the 10th, I was part of the U of L contingency that had gone to Edmonton to speak to uh, ADMs there in different ministries about our research. And one of the research topics I talked about was the wildfire studies. And on uh, that weekend, of course, the fires occurred in Slave Lake. And on the Monday morning, I was inundated with media. And I had done, did media all that week, which literally went around the world. And then within about two weeks, I got this email from the then um, ADM for Research in Science and Technology asking to meet with me. And so they had been at meetings together in Edmonton. People knew what we were doing, and we were approached to actually conduct a study on Slave Lake. So we were actually very fortunate that the government support was here as well in terms of wanting to find out what happened, but also financial support. So today we're going to learn about the impacts of these fires on the children, families, and their community, and what does it mean for our life here in southern Alberta. And I just want to make note of this photograph, and there's several of them by Michael J. Capusta within the presentation. Mike was a medical student in Slave Lake at the time um, of the fire, and one of the very difficult decisions that the local firefighters had to make was to decide which buildings to let burn and which ones to save. So they had to decide to let houses burn, and the, town, the government town centre burned to save the hospital. So Mike was working in the hospital, so he helped with all the evacuation. So he was able to take these incredible photographs. And then they, people were evacuated to the Nova Hotel, and then eventually when the road was clear, they were able to get people out of town. But I just wanted to give Mike credit, and we have copyright clearance from him to use them. <clears throat> just a few comments about the actual community itself. It's a small area. It actually includes three different areas. So it's talking about the town of Slave Lake, which is about 6,700 people, the Sarvage First Nations, which is only 55, it's a very small reserve, and the municipal district, which is just under 2,900 people. So our study was with all these communities. I also want to point out that even though the Sarvage First Nation is a small community in size, the, the total population of the Slave Lake area is about one-third Aboriginal, but they're not necessarily members of the Sawridge First Nation. <coughs> the municipal district has a number of different hamlets, both east and west of the t town proper of Slave Lake. So the fires began on the east end, so the town of, or the hamlet of Mitsu actually burnt first. They lost their fire department as well. And then it went into the town, and then another fire came from the west, and burnt the hamlet areas um, in uh, Canyon Creek and Widewater and so on. So as already said by the comments I made about the number of embers per hectare and everything, this was a very, very difficult fire. And they, they thought they had it under control until the wind came up. And people describe uh, hurricane force winds. And the winds were at about 114 kilometers an hour. And the problem with the fire, as, as I've already said, is the embers and what it can pick up and what it can move. And when houses are close together, like they are in a subdivision like that, they just move so quickly from one to another. It was very, very dry conditions. Um, it, the, it did enter the town, and there was an evacuation. But you have to remember that there was no power and there was no water. And in fact, the, um, the former government center, which also partially burnt, was the command center. It, the roof actually went on fire and they had to evacuate the government center. So because they had lost total power, they weren't able to actually say to people, evacuate. And in fact, the radio station also burnt to the ground. It's just been reopened a few weeks ago. But that was yet another problem. So their, their way of communication was gone. Because this is the modern age, people use a lot of social media. And people began taking photographs and video and sending it to people over the wires, which actually caused a lot of problems. 
because there's only so many lines you can use at the same time. So that caused a problem. Um, it, the fire was also unusual in that it burned all three power line feeds into the community. So there was this mass evacuation on the road, and then May 27th, there was a return to the town. So in total, one-third of the town was lost, including 502 households. They lost their homes, so that includes apartment buildings as well as single-dwelling homes, three churches, ten businesses, the municipal library and the town administration offices, and some of the regional provincial government offices within that government center. Because they were trying to save that building and they saved part of it, a lot of the area also got water damage, so they had a lot of issues with water damage. It is being rebuilt, and it will be reopened in spring of 2013. In the MD, there was 56 residences destroyed and one commercial building. And at this point, it is the second largest payout in the Canadian insurance in industry, second only to the Quebec ice storms of 1998. But anybody I know says this will top $1 billion within a few months. So it will be very close to the Quebec ice storms. Um, this is um, the only wildfire study that we know of uh, in the world, literally, that is including multiple methods. And to get on the ground and be in this community August the 8th when the fire was May 14th is really unbelievable that we had our first ethics approval, had our funding, and we're already in the community. So we did a couple of different things. First of all, I hired a postdoc. Her name is Dr. Anas pujanas Bolte. Uh, her time with us has completed. But she lived in Edmonton at the time of the study, so she drove back and forth to Slave Lake and did uh, most of the interviews and uh, the survey work and et cetera. And then I made additional trips with her. I made four or five trips with her. So there were interviews with stakeholders. So that means town administration, firefighters, um, health personnel, and so on. We also interviewed families and children because we really wanted to know what was going on with children. What was the impact going to be? And the children had to be between the ages of 9 and 12. We didn't want to get the things mixed up with adolescence in terms of hormonal changes and emotional changes, so we cut it off at the age of 12. We did extensive field work in this community. We did a school-based survey for all kids between the ages of 8 and 18 at two times. Time one was six months after the fire, and time two was 12 months after the fire. And there you'll see our sample sizes there. We based the school-based survey on some work done in Australia by McDermott, who has done some very, uh, very high-quality bushfire impact studies with kids. And uh, we made some decisions about the tools that we use and everything based on his work so we can do comparison between our work in Australia. And finally, we did a household survey as well. This study, of course, represents a snapshot in time, and you can see that the interviews were done, all completed by Christmas of last year. So people were living in temporary housing, people were living in campgrounds, people were living with their in-laws, wherever they were living. <clears throat> and in addition, um, they had a lot of things to do with. If they lost their home, of course, they had to deal with insurance agencies, they had to deal with rebuildings. There's lots going on in their lives. So it's a very different community than it is today, one year later. The school-based survey, I've already mentioned that time period. And we did the household survey in March to June of this year. So what did we find out? Well, no surprise, the disaster was totally unexpected. Um, and you can see very high rates there. 55% uh, were not prepared at all. They were just completely flabbergasted by, that this was happening in their community. It was an awful experience for most of the people uh, and went, what they went through in terms of its suddenness, its severity. You'll see that 90% 90, 90 talked about the severity in terms of how they experienced this wildfire. 
Um, they either knew someone who came near death or felt they came near death themselves. Some thought they would die. They were separated from their family, at least 58% of the people that responded to the household survey. There were multiple losses. So of the 550 people that responded to the survey, 521 lost some kind of possession. Um, homes, 521, and you'll see a variety of things. Community services, 293. Motor vehicles, 85. Pets, businesses. So this was a very huge loss. We asked people about their health status after the wildfire. And you'll see that despite the wildfire, that a large percentage, if you add up 39 and 15, you've got over 54%, rated their health as either very good or excellent. If we look at their stress levels, you'll see, no surprise, um, over 46% uh, refer to it as high or very high. And there was a number of comments made within uh, the interviews about how they felt. There was a space there, and there was lots of people that talked about emotional turmoil, financial problems, depression, health problems afterwards that they attributed to the fire, including their relatives having heart attacks or diagnosis of cancer or whatever it was. So this took a huge toll on them as a family and as people. So there were these emotional social impacts. But there was also a belief that we found from our interviews that, that they will get through it. They talked about themselves as being these northern people that could get through this. So we looked at three particular areas, the impacts on children, families, and community. And this bottom photograph here is the government center, just so that you're aware. And the top picture is their temporary housing that they um, used and employed in the community because people didn't have anywhere to live. And they set priorities as to who would get into that housing for second and third and so on. Okay, let's talk about family recovery. So what we've done in these slides is we've put together the information from the interviews with the information from the different surveys. So first of all, people talked about reevaluating their life goals and priorities. And they talked about going back to normal. And there's a new phrase in, in Slave Lake, which is the new normal. And that's a really interesting way to think about their community. They talked about constant worries, that it was a slow recovery, that they felt they had to get through this by step by step, that you know there was this priority about, I'm going to get to temporary housing, I'm going to get my kids in school, I'm going to work through with the insurance, I'm going to you know, hire a contractor, I'm going to get through the first Christmas. All those kind of things were very important to them. There was a realization of a new financial situation. Some people had lost their jobs, or in some instances, there was no workers for the jobs that were there. So, for example, the first visit we made in August of 2011, lots of stores were closed. Tim Hortons had just reopened. There was a celebration for that, only because they brought in temporary foreign workers. Uh, stores like Reitman's and so on were all closed because the women that normally worked in them had to be in the campground with their kids because their husband's job paid more, and they had to work, and maybe they worked in the oil industry because there was a lot of oil there. So somebody had to babysit the kids at the campground. So they were off with the kids, and the stores had to be shut down. So that became a, an, an economic issue, not just for the family, but for the community as a whole. You'll see that the top changes there included financial or income was the top one, followed by uh, living arrangements. Pardon me, the other way around. Living arrangements was the biggest one. No surprise, right? 
And in fact, when people talked about their capacity to work, you'll see that there was a loss of capacity to work. Either they couldn't work for whatever reason, either physically, emotionally, or the place was not available to them. The place was destroyed, or the work was not needed anymore. In addition, they created these new routines. There was different priorities because they had different living arrangements. And uh, there was a sense that we got from the interviews that kids basically were neglected. And I'll talk more about that all the way through. But the reality is that parents were very busy with insurance companies and rebuilding, simply didn't have enough energy to address the issues uh, with their children. That's not a surprise for us. The McClure fire actually found the same things. The other interesting thing was this whole change of attitude. So you'll see that there were these two groups of parents that emerged in the community. And the first group was that they were stressed and concerned about their families. And the second group felt guilty and sad. Um, I didn't lose my home, but my friend did. And this really did affect the way that they interacted in the community. And then there was this whole question about the parents saying, well, the kids don't seem to be affected. They seem to be fine. But I'll go back to that theme in a few minutes. We asked them in the household survey about whether or not their interactions as a family had changed. And there was a group that talked about being closer and stronger. And there was another group that talked about being both the same, closer and stronger. And another one said they actually were emotionally further apart and there was difficulties in interaction. So you'll see there on the bottom the percentages of that. So about the same was about 56%. And family cohesion was stronger for about 34% of them, but weaker for about 10%. And certainly we know there's lots of talk about increase of domestic violence and so on. We know that from uh, a mental health perspective that the um, opportunity or the need to use the Mental Health Act to actually provide care for somebody tripled in the year that the fire before the fire till after the fire. So big things were going on. So I mentioned already that there were these two groups of parents, and so it caused some changes in the interaction between people. And one thing was that there were these creation of groups so that there was this sense among some that, there, that slave they could become a tighter community, that there actually were closer social networks and stronger relationships. But the other part, though, was that there were difficult interactions. There was a broken community. People didn't know how to talk to one another anymore. People lost their homes. People didn't lose their homes. And when they met together, whether it be at the grocery store or whatever, they didn't always feel comfortable talking with one another. Little things would set the person off who had lost their home into tears. So the person who hadn't lost was nervous about making them feel uncomfortable. We went back to Slave Lake the week of September 19th and presented our findings to the public. And there was an older gentleman in the, cr in the crowd, probably in his 70s. And he said to us he felt guilty, and he didn't know whether or not that was normal. And it really bothered him that he felt guilty. And then he came to us after the presentation and talked again. He says he just feels so guilty because of all their friends, he and his wife lost nothing, and all their friends have lost everything. And to restart and reaccumulate things when you're in, se in your 70s would be a difficult thing to do. What's also really important about the findings is this reconsideration of values and perceptions. People talked overwhelmingly about appreciating family more, appreciating the value of being together as a family, and actually have used the wildfire as a lesson that it's just stuff, and we have each other, and it's important that we move forward because it is just stuff. So they felt that they had created a stronger sense of solidarity with themselves as a family.
So the children's recovery, I've hinted a few times that there's been some issues here. Well, are there no changes or are there important changes? Well, first of all, we know from the household survey, because in the household survey, people were asked to report on their children from ages 7 to 12 about how they experienced the wildfire. And we use the same kind of assessment tools, very well-known assessment tools. One's called the PTSD or the post-traumatic stress disorder tool. And the other one is the strengths and difficulty questionnaire. So we can do some comparisons between the school survey and the household survey. So uh, of the 92 kids that were within that household survey, you'll see here that the child's reaction was very extreme in terms, the parent's perception of the child's reaction was very extreme in terms of that evacuation. Hysterical, terrified, feeling helpless, feeling confused, and so on. And the parents said a year after the fire that 50 of those 92 children still had difficulties with emotions, concentration, behavior, or getting along with people, although they related that it was only 60% were minor difficulties. What's really interesting, and I'll explain this table here, but what we're doing here is we're comparing the school survey, which was a self-report about how I'm doing, compared to the parental report of how they think their children are doing. Now remember, it's not the same, not necessarily the same kids, but it tells us something really interesting. If you look at the numbers, and there are three kinds of PTSD that are of concern. One is the re-experiencing, which is always higher, so it's this worry about it happening again, avoidance and arousal. So you'll see in the self-report that the kids, when we looked at their figures, 55% say they, were, they are experiencing the, the re-experiencing part of PTSD, whereas the parent report only 31.8. This is time one and this is time two for the survey. So you can see that it does go down from time one to time two within the school survey. And you'll see here again, full diagnosis likely based on the kids' self-report at time one, six months after the fire, we have 12% but we have 0% for the parents. And if we look down for um, the time two for the kids, 7.9, if we look down for partial diagnosis likely, 24% self-report and 12%. So what does this tell us? Well, what it's talking about then is that parents have quite a different perception of how kids are doing. The kids are saying, I'm not doing as well as the parents, my parents think I'm doing. They're masking some of those things, and it's likely because the kids want to protect their parents. They know their parents are overwhelmed, they're busy, they don't want to stress them anymore, so they kind of keep in what they've got. And if you talk to the teachers in Slave Lake, they tell you that this is true, that what they saw in the classroom was full-blown PTSD, and the teachers felt that they needed additional supports to assist with that perspective. The other really interesting thing is, who is at risk for PTSD among the children? So let's take a look at this. So what it's doing is it's comparing the PTSD full diagnosis with the abnormal strength and difficulty questionnaire. And you'll see here the ones that are at risk. So they're in elementary school. They're younger. They're age 8 to 11. They're, most of them are girls. That shouldn't surprise us. But what is inter interesting is that the minority of them lost their home. Okay, so the minority of them did not, um, minority of them lost their home. And that's really an important thing to think about. Why is that, that we're having the kids who didn't lose their home be more at risk? So we think there might be a couple of things going on. One thing could be that um, the children 
um, are feeling guilty. It's that guilt thing that I talked about with the adults. It might be the same for the kids. The other thing might be this whole issue of they might have had um, some pre-existing emotional or mental issues to begin with. From McDermott's study, he found that within two years after the wildfire, the PTSD scores for the children go back to normal, basically. And if they don't, and it's a very low rate, it's something like 2%, when it doesn't go back to normal, those kids had a problem to begin with, and the wildfire only exacerbated the problem. So what it's telling us in terms of policy and in terms of practice is we have to treat all the kids the same. We have to say, it doesn't matter if you lost your house or not, you probably need some kind of mental health counseling. You need some additional supports here to get through this whole ordeal that you've been through. So let's talk about the community recovery and whether or not it's seen as resilient and if it has moved on. So people certainly talked about the fact that this community... Uh, was tested by the fire in terms of its resiliency. And there's a well-known scale by Buckner which talks about cohesion. How is it that people get along in neighborhoods? And uh, what is that figure like for this community? So they're very good scores, 3.6 out of 5 out of a possible 5. So it's a very good score, meaning that this place is a cohesive place. And that cohesion existed before the wildfire even occurred. We have our own index of perceived community resilience. And again, very good score in terms of this place before the wildfire had characteristics that would demonstrate that it was a resilient place. And people talked, as I said before, about these hardiness and tough people and that there is a sense of belonging, there is an attachment here and that they get help and support as needed. We saw lots of evidence in that in this community over the last year. What they did, which was brilliant, was that they had a monthly family event that was free, and it was open to anyone if you lost your house or not. So it was a free activity, like uh, they have a beautiful swimming complex in Slave Lake. Uh, they waived the fees for the night, everybody went swimming, they had free pizza, it was a family night to get together. Uh, they had other activities during the year as well. They had different speakers that came in to talk about grief and dealing with uh, the issues of the wildfire. So those were good things. The downfall of that, however, was that not everybody believed that it really was for everybody. So there was a lot of families that believed it really was only for those who had lost their house. And that may also interact and cause those issues within the community about guilt and how to communicate and the development of groups within the community. Going back and forth, we took pictures of the same neighborhoods on purpose over time. So this, of course, is August 2011. Um, the, the burnt area, you could only get in by permit. So we got in by permit. This is what it looked like. There is November of 2011. You can see the difference in how many houses are already gone up. This is March 2012. Look at the difference in this street again. And this is just September 2012, a few weeks ago when we were there. Again, showing how rebuilt this community is. It's phenomenal. Uh, they've gotten over 200 uh, building permits and houses are going up. Um, it, they have done a phenomenal amount of work. But there's also that other end of cohesion and getting along, as I'm saying. So uh, these scores, the dark red, are high levels of cohesion. This hatched area here is um, the burnt area. So what we're doing in here is we're actually taking, like a, if you can imagine, a colored pinpoint for each person that submitted the household survey and we've given them a score based on what they've told us, and we've been able to match how they're doing compared to the, the actual area that burnt. 
So it provides us with an opportunity to think about what are the links between being in or out of the burnt area in terms of cohesion. This is the resiliency one, and the, the dark red, uh, rather than the brown, is the high levels of resiliency. So you can again see the patterns there in terms of what is happening with this community. So why is this really important? Well, from our previous research, we found that this whole sense of community, having uh, an attachment or an attraction to your neighborhood, and this whole neighboring behaviors leads to a sense of community engagement. And the higher your community engagement is, the more likelihood that you're going to display resiliency and get along together as a group. So that's a really important thing when we think about policies because we want to think about how do we make sure we have strong communities. So if we were to conclude about Slave Lake, what we would say, well, it's a strong community, it's recovering. There's been lots of local recovery efforts. Children and families have been impacted, and there certainly are a lot of stresses. So what does this mean for us? That we've got a, a variety of recommendations. There's been some one-pagers put on the tables and were handed out at the door that emphasize those. But here's some examples of uh, what we have here. This whole idea of promoting community resiliency through community events and activities. And that includes helping put uh, family supports in place before anything happens. You can't have a strong community after disaster if you don't have a strong community beforehand. So we have to invest that energy in that. The other important thing um, is this whole idea of intersectoral collaboration. People have to get along in terms of agencies, both locally and provincially. So you have to make sure that you know the police know the local firefighters and the local firefighters know the provincial firefighters, that there has to be connections with those kind of things. After the disaster, what was really important and what we continue to talk about is this opportunity for children and families to get together, support one another and enjoy one another, and to plan occasions that acknowledge recovery efforts. We really think it's important, particularly in the Slave Lake, that you assess family functioning and general coping for up to six years after the fire. As I said, this is a snapshot in time. Things are different this year compared to last year. Um, people talk in the community on the street about more issues arising this year compared to last year because they were so busy rebuilding and now they have to settle into everything. So those are things to think about. I can't say enough about the need for additional mental health services, both within the school system, for the public, uh, helping parents to talk to their children about wildfires and what those impacts are. So what's the future of our wildfire work? Well, we've got a variety of, of reports and materials available. They're all available free of charge on our webpage. We uh, spent a lot of time uh, talking with groups like yourselves. We've been to Slave Lake. I've, in that three days that we were there, we interacted with over 200 people. Um, I was at a conference last week, the Wildlands Conference in Kanaskis Country, talking to people about Slave Lake. Uh, we've been to other conferences. And tomorrow I'm spending the day in Edmonton with three different ministries of government talking to them about the impacts of this fire and what it means to them as a government. I'd like to acknowledge um, all the people involved in this study from the, the town council, the um, Sarwish First Nations and the MD. We could not have done it without them. And I've said it more than once at public forums, but you know, there they were trying to rebuild their community in early June and there I was bothering them for letters of support because I had to have it for it like to acknowledge all the other investigators and team members and our funders. 
And certainly feel free to contact me at any time, and there is our webpage. Thank you very much for listening.